Hi friends, and welcome to this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a counterterrorism professional turned career coach, Forbes blogger, speaker, and now author of my own career book that has just released for pre-order on Amazon. You can probably guess the name as it's also called U-Turn, spelled Y-O-U-T-U-R-N. This book is all about getting unstuck, discovering your direction, and designing your dream career. I created the U-Turn podcast and wrote the U-Turn book with this goal of helping you reconnect to who you truly are and upgrading your confidence in work and in love. So if you're looking to get even more clarity beyond the podcast and even the book on where you belong in the workforce or you wanna make a career pivot or just explore your purpose overall, we have a brand new free quiz to help you out with that. Just head on over to ashleystahl.com if you wanna take it. It's A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-T-A-H-L.com for the free quiz. Also, I'm really excited to finally let you know that this episode has been brought to you by Organifi. I have fallen so in love with their smoothie protein, their chocolate, their vanilla, and also their green juice drink. I have both of these products every single day. And after years of declining and dodging sponsorship, because I didn't want to feel sticky promoting something to you, I decided that their products were so good, so transformative for my health and my morning routine that I reached out to them and asked if they wanted to sponsor the U-Turn show. So if you are inspired to upgrade your health during these uncertain times and you want products to add into your routine throughout the day, I just can't recommend them enough. I was able to get you a discount code for 15% off when you check out. All you gotta do is head on over to Organifi.com backslash U-Turn. It's spelled Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com backslash Y-O-U, T-U-R-N. Make sure you enter the code U-Turn at checkout on their website. And now let's dive in to this week's episode. If you want easy, then anyone listening should just give up on the whole true love game. Because easy and true love, they just don't go together. Okay? And it's not, it's not that it's never fun, or it's never enjoyable, or it's never smooth or easy. It is. But if you're not willing to experience the intensity that it takes to tessellate and intertwine your complex different value set from your partners, if you're not willing to do that work, and it is an Everest climb, then you're going to be fighting the whole way. Hi friends, I have one of the most favorited episode people on the podcast again, Annie Lala in the love category. And she's so powerful. And I know that a lot of you guys experienced it. And if you're new to the podcast and you've been listening a while, maybe you didn't get back all the way to the first few episodes where Annie Lala talks about how to actually create true love. She has seven different steps in that episode, I believe. And I've never gotten so much feedback on an episode. So today I wanted to be vulnerable and bring to the table um, some challenges that I'm going through in my love life so that Annie can help all of us learn how to ask for what we want or what we need, how to make requests of our partner, or if you're dating the person you're, you're seeing, how to just make a request that inspires somebody to actually meet you in the request. Because I know, especially as women, which I know there's some very cool and developed men listening as well, but as women, uh, it can be really challenging to ask for what you want and feel like you're being tactful in that and getting, getting what you want. Um, sometimes that is overwhelming to make a request. And, and one topic that Annie will talk about is request versus demands. So, uh, Annie, without further ado, the best love coach I know, thank you so much for coming back onto the show. Yeah, Ashley, it's great to be here. I'm excited to jump in. I'm so proud of you for opening up your own relationship and your own heart us to work on and help a lot of other people who are listening. Thank you. You know, I feel like this podcast has been such a personal project and, and I'm so grateful that people listen to it and get value out of my own struggles. But um, for those of you who are listening, I don't know if I've talked about this on podcast before, but one thing that's gotten really present with William and I, since we moved in together with COVID is he's an alpha male. So he works really hard in his career. He's a leader. He's probably one of the most talented people I've seen in their career. He's just really good at what he does, always getting promoted. And with that comes like, he has a very strong sense of him, you know, he's working, it's his career. And I have a lot of different needs that come up 
And um, he grew up in um, a very loving family and his parents were also quite strict sometimes. And so he has a bit of a like, don't tell me what to do thing. So whenever I come to him with a need, it's very tempting for him to say, don't tell me what to do. And it has been really challenging not to go into a power struggle where I want something and he feels like I'm just telling him what to do. So I don't know if some of you have gone through this. I'm sure you have in some way or another. So I figured, Annie, we could kind of navigate together this challenge and come up with steps for everyone. And before we even dive in, can you tell a little bit, uh, everybody a little bit about what you do and, and where your brilliance is with love coaching? Yeah, I'm a relationship coach, but in particular, I call myself a cartographer of love. So a cartographer is a map maker. And so what I've been doing is mapping the very complex labyrinthine terrain of interpersonal dynamics and emotions and relationships. Like I think of it as a very complex territory and I've been moving along the territory, making maps. And I try to bring these maps to the people I teach and to my clients and Basically, I'm a love coach. I help people believe in love. If they're single, I help them find their soulmate and show them how to open their life and their heart so that they're dockable to a future partner. Most people who are single think they're available, but they're actually closed off energetically, um, time-wise, emotionally. And so when the dream partner comes by, there's no place for them to dock and port their relationship. So I help singles, you know, become dockable to their soulmate. And I help couples who are in love and who are really committed to this relationship working. I help them move through their recurrent conflict. I'm basically a specialist in conflict resolution. I'm kind of like the ER doctor of emotional um, drama. People call me when everything else isn't working. They call me and I um, I bring up the big guns. Because what I really do is I stand for the relationship. I don't take sides. I don't take the guy's side, the girl's side, or either partner's side. I am standing for the health of the relationship. And I will call on either partner on behavior that is not serving and nourishing the connection. I love this. And, um, I can say working with you in my own past has been one of the most powerful experiences. You really are original. And that's something that I absolutely love about you. Every time I talk to you, I'm hearing something new and you seem to just have your own body of work. I'm also kind of curious to, or I want to share with everybody. I've been reading a book called Hold Me Tight. Have you read that book? Oh yeah, Johnson. I love her. (laughs) I love her work. And one of the most powerful things I read in her book was she, she talks about different dances that couples go through different fights or power struggles that they go through. And I identify with a lot of them, but she said that the, 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 the most toxic or, um, damaging struggle you could get into is when both people completely check out. And she said that most relationships don't end because there's conflict. They end because somebody's emotional needs aren't being seen or met and, um, or their hunger for connection or their hunger to be seen. And I, and I totally get that because as humans, we are just so wired for connection. And if we don't feel like we can get that from our partner, we might turn outwards. And I know that a lot of connection comes back to having basic needs and feeling like your partner can meet them or care about them. And one thing I've struggled with is figuring out what I want versus what I need. Sometimes I'm like, I need this. And then I'm like, no, I just really want it. I don't yeah, need Yeah, that's that. a great distinction, actually. Let's just pull that up. Um, yeah. I think a lot of people throw needs into the category of wants because it gets more, it makes a more compelling case. But when you actually think about it, like you don't need your partner to go to the Christmas party to, with you. Needs I like to think of as like kind of life, life or death situation. And wants, most of the things we are requesting from our partner are wants. And the reason we struggle with calling them wants is because most, um, it's generally the female, but it's usually there's one partner that is stronger at selfhood. And in every relationship, there's one partner that's stronger at othering or empathizing with the other person. So there's a selfer and an otherer in every successful relationship. In my relationship, I'm the selfer, sorry, I'm the otherer and my husband's the selfer. And so um, the partner that doesn't know how to self and stand for their own truth and their own um, reality as well, they have trouble saying, I want. It's easier for them to say, I need. But actually, both are difficult because both I want and I need start with I. And that's the upstream place where you have to do the work. If you're the more empathic, othery type of person, you have to cultivate your sense of self your I-hood, in order to express a need, whether it's um, a, a need or a want or a desire. 
And so I always work with my clients on their esteem and their individuality and their autonomy and their internal sense of self before I work on them expressing their needs and wants. Because I think of needs and wants kind of like Christmas ornaments. And you can have a box of Christmas ornaments, but they're no good if you don't have a Christmas tree to hang them on. So your self is the Christmas tree. Your needs and wants are things that hang on the Christmas tree. And so it's very hard to express things that you desire if you don't have a core sense of self. And basically, I'm 10 years into working and mapping how to generate a self from not really having a strong one. And I basically fell in love with the smartest, most intelligent selfer that I could find. And I've spent the last 10 years cross-training, like literally asking my husband, how did you come up with that individual sense of what you needed when everybody else wanted something different? How do you not fold when the group has a different opinion? And interviewing him for algorithms that he uses inside of his mind to keep a sense of his own autonomy and serenity rather than worrying about what everyone else needs. So I've asked him to cross-train me. And this is actually part of what I'm suggesting with couples is to become the apprentice and the student of your partner. Like your partner, Ashley, he's good at selfing, right? Yeah. And it's never probably occurred to you that when you've seen him in a situation, stand for his own opinion or tell someone no when you would have said yes because they're really coercive. How did you do that, honey? Like, how did you just hold your boundary there? I would have folded 10 times over. Take me inside your world and teach me. How did you do that? Now, they don't exactly know how they do it because it's native and it's very instinctual for them. But if you persevere and say, come on, try to break it down for me. Give me the paint by numbers of what you're doing. They can usually model the inner workings of their mind and teach you how they're selfing. And this is the whole point. This is why you fell in love with that person. You fell in love with your favorite teacher in the domain you most need to cultivate. That's who you fall in love with. And so to not become their student is kind of a waste of their genius. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also just kind of, I think to myself, like love, I've always wanted it to be easy. And William and I have had a very easy relationship for a long time, but as soon as COVID hit and we moved in together and we got a puppy oh and we were really putting our lives together, it like little things like me wanting to decorate would come up against like him being like, well, I want to have a say in that or, um, and so I'm, I'm curious to kind of help everybody understand, like, what does it look like when you're making a request versus a demand and what should happen through our brain before we even start talking or cultivating what we want to ask for? Excellent. Okay. Before I go into the request versus demand, I just want you pointed out, you said, you know, I always want relationships to be easy. And you've heard me say this before, so I'm just going to say it again. If you want easy, then anyone listening should just give up on the whole true love game because easy and true love, they just don't go together. Okay. And it's not, it's not that it's never fun and it's never enjoyable or it's never smooth or easy. It is. But if you're not willing to experience the intensity that it takes to um, tessellate and intertwine your complex, different value set from your partners, if you're not willing to do that work and it is an Everest climb, then you're going to be fighting the whole way. Like if you, if, if you think you're supposed to go for a walk in the park, you're going to throw a water bottle and, and, you know, some food in your backpack. But if you're actually climbing Everest, the water bottle in your backpack and the food is not going to serve you. So I like to just tell people like true love is an Everest climb. You need to train and you need to pack right. So I always want the expectations from the head, from the get go. It's hard. Okay. It's a gladiator sport. It's not for the faint hearted. And my husband likes to say, um, it doesn't take a lot to be in love. It just takes everything. Like it literally takes everything and um, I just want to prepare people to, uh, to know that because uh, the idea that it's going to be easy is some weird fairy tale where happily ever after is how the story ends. And actually, that's where the work starts when you find your partner. Mm. That's when all the work starts. So that's the first thing about easy. Mm-hmm. Now, I want, okay, the mindset you want to be having. Um, first, as I said, you have to start noticing that you're not very good at selfing. I think it's just part of your like recognition, like, oh, I'm extraordinary at empathizing and othering and worrying about everyone else's feelings. I'm not so good at tracking what I feel, what I need, what I want. It's all kind of ambiguous. For a long time, I didn't know what I want until my husband would say what he wants. And unless he, he talked first, I wouldn't be able to even find an orienting. Like It's like the fixed point is what he said, and then I can orient on that because I didn't have my own individual core self 
I had him as the fixed point. The problem with that is your partner experiences you as invisible or not there. Literally, people who are strong selfers, like your partner, when he walks into a room with you, he literally sends out little signals with his comments and his energy, pinging to try and see if Ashley's there. He might say, hey, do you want to go for a walk after the session? And then you might say, well, do you? I don't know. And you waffle and you hesitate, but you don't, you don't say what you want. When he pings you and you don't come back with a clear position, he feels wobbly and unsafe. It's hard for, it was really difficult for me to realize this until I, I realized my husband doesn't feel safe when he asks me a question and I don't have an answer. It's kind of like um, asking someone to lean up against a wall, a nice solid wall, which supports them, or asking them to lean up against a camping tent. When we don't have a strong sense of self, our partners feel like we're a camping tent and they just can't lean on it and there's no support or sturdiness. And so you got to feel into yourself like, am I a camping tent or am I a sturdy wall? So how do you develop this sense of self? Well, first one I said, become a student of your partner, really interview them and try to find out how do they do it. Watch people who are really good at selfing in the world, people you admire, characters, fictional characters. Just notice how they deal with circumstances when they, they want to ask for something or they have a boundary to, to hold or they want to say no. Just notice how they do it and start modeling that. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Wait, I have another question about that. So like one thing I feel like I oddly have is like, so, okay, this is interesting. And I don't know how many women are going to relate to this, but William is actually a bit indecisive and I'm very decisive. So he kind of feels like I'm coming in like fire, like fire blazing when I'm like, Hey, I really want to do this. And I'm clear about that. And his go-to is usually like, I need time to think about what I want and I'll get back to you. And it, it leaves me feeling like, does he care about what I want? You know, how long is it going to take for him to get back to me? When he I takes the time, very- does he come back or does he just disappear? It, no, usually I have to chase him like, because he wants like infinite time to think about things. He's, and he, he registers, if I say like, can you give me a deadline? He'll register that as me telling him what to do. Like, oh, you're going to give me a deadline. Like I need a deadline to get back to you. Um, and that's kind of all part of his alpha, like him keeping his power is like, I'm, I'm going to take as long as I need and I'll get back to you when I can. And I don't okay, know how long I it's going to take. I got a tactic for you. It's called my broken record technique. Yeah. Okay. So what yeah. usually happens okay. is you go, Hey honey, can I buy the shelf for the living room? I'll get back to you. I need some time. And a day passes, honey. Um, how do you feel about the shelf for the living room? I need some more time. So after about two or three asks on your end, or I don't know how many times you come back, you might start to get escalated and impatient and frustrated. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Great. Right. So that escalation, frustration, and impatience is actually a subtle secret, unbeknownst to you, manipulation technique. Okay. It's an mm. attempt to, just like, you know, the internet marketers buy now there's only three left. It's like a forcing a sense of urgency by raising your voice and escalating your energy. And I'm not making you wrong for it. I do it too. Just be aware that it is a very powerful manipulation technique. And it's an attempt unconsciously to corner with dysregulated nervous system that scares our partner to, to corner them into coughing up an answer because what they're doing is extrapolating from this moment. If she's raising her voice and getting upset now, it's only going to get worse. And I don't want to live in that world where it gets worse and worse and worse. So I'm going to tell her the answer. Now you might think, well, how the hell do I get an answer then Annie, if I don't just keep escalating? Well, here's the broken record technique. This it's very hard to do, but it's very simple. Honey, I would like to buy this shelf for the living room. Can you have a look at it? Is this okay? No, not now later, honey. I would like to buy the shelf for the living room. Can you look at it? Now, broken record, remember when the, when you when a record is stuck, it doesn't get louder and louder each time it stutters. It's the same tone. It's the same persistence. You just keep hounding them day after day, minute after minute. At some point, they will respond to your broken record incessant asks. But if you don't raise your voice, escalate, get angry, frustrated, um, shamey, if you can resist the shame, blame, make wrong and the anxiety game, which by the way, as a woman, the work it takes for you to have to internally regulate your nervous system, 
calm the hell down, breathe through your grumble. That work only makes you a more extraordinary woman, teacher, leader, future mother. So that's great work that your partner is unwittingly forcing you to go to the gym and build some muscles that is only going to serve you. So it's not like they're forcing you to develop a skill that's not going to be useful in your life. The ability to calmly reassert a need without escalating is the skill here. And I call it broken record because you keep saying it over and over at the same tone. Mm -hmm. So there's no like activation in your tone and that's the thing that that makes it the difference. That clears out the manipulation. Clears out the manipulation and it'll have them not respond with don't tell me what to do because don't tell me what to do is your catch-all, your your partner's catch-all response to, I feel you cornering me and manipulating me. That they're responding to the tone. If you literally mm. did robot tone, like, hey, honey, I want to buy this bookshelf. Can I buy this bookshelf? Hey, honey, I want to buy this bookshelf. Do you like this bookshelf? And you just keep doing it. They will not respond with, don't tell me what to do. They'll respond with the way a little mosquito is buzzing around you. You're just like, oh, okay, yeah, let's buy a bookshelf. Yeah, okay, no. Because they just want you to stop the asking. But they're not getting mm. um, um, controlled by the tone. It's the tone that sounds that is occurring as controlling to them, not the words. So just stick to the words. Now, who you have to be to control the tone is closer to the Dalai Lama. And guess what? Why not practice getting closer to the Dalai Lama? Because this is what it's going to take to be a great mom. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to ask your kid mm-hmm. seven times to put their shoes on. And they're not avoiding you mm-hmm. to torture your life. They just are busy in Dalai Land and they didn't hear you. So you have to get good at broken record without escalating and shaming and making them wrong. Mm, okay. So this makes me want to think about shaming and blaming. Cause I think sometimes with requests versus demands, it's like, um, it can get very like heated. Um, something William and I have really worked on is just keeping energy pretty calm and getting more curious about each other, which has its own challenges. But I know that sometimes with this stuff, couples can get very tired. And I've had a lot of friends during COVID reach out about this to me and talk about it where one partner is fatigued with being together or working on the relationship and the other partner is in pursuing them, wanting to talk about things. I think this is probably very common. What advice do you have for people who one person is exhausted and tapped out and doesn't want to talk about things anymore and the other one wants to work through it? Well, this is a classic pattern that happens all the time outside of COVID, anytime there's conflict between two partners, there's always one partner that needs space, solitude, wants to lean out of the conversation or the energetic interaction. There's always one partner who wants to lean in. And literally, Gay and Katie Hendricks, they wrote Conscious Loving, which is an extraordinary book. You should get it. I'll give you a list of books at the end, best relationship books. They call, they have a name for this. There's one partner that is the isolator, They isolate when things are intense. They want space. And there's one partner that is a fuser. They want to glom on and attach to the other person and in their needy, desiring way, wants to use the connection to regulate their stressed nervous system. Whereas the isolator wants space away in order to regulate their distressed nervous system. But what's interesting in both Both people, the one that wants to lean in and the one that wants to lean out, both of them are trying to regulate their nervous system, which basically means calming their body down, grounding, getting more peaceful, getting out of the frazzly, angry, upset, scared state. Both partners are trying to get calm. What's interesting is the thing that calms one partner makes the other one feel unsafe, right? So the isolator leans out and wants space to, in order to feel safe, but that leaning out makes the other partner feel unsafe. And the partner that's leaning in and wants to talk about it and be all connected and intimate and discuss, that partner needs the connection to feel safe, but it actually makes the other partner feel unsafe. So isn't this interesting? Isn't this odd that the very yeah. thing that makes one safe makes the other feel unsafe? Well, this is an important point. I am the fuser, so I would chase Eben around the house trying to like, get a hug or tell him, have him tell me that he loves me or everything's going to be okay. And I thought, well, of course I'm chasing him around. It's going to make us both feel better if we just connect. Once I did the psychological research and realized that my husband, who is an isolator, who needs to lean out, that the feeling he has in his body when I come towards him, the, 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 the scary feeling in his body, 
is exactly the same feeling I have in my body when he leans out. So it, I think it's really important for partners to realize that the thing that makes you feel safe actually makes your partner feel unsafe. And it's the same amount of unsafe. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to believe that going away could make him feel safe because that's my terror. So once I realized that, I saw me chasing my husband around as a, basically like a stalking terrorizer. That's what I was actually doing. And I, start, I had to wake up and go, shit, I need to, instead of using him and his telling me it's okay and his telling me he loves me or hugging me, instead of using him to regulate my nervous system, what I need to do is go and learn to regulate it myself. How can I actually make myself feel calm and safe without my partner being involved? This question, this is the beginning of a relationship growing up. This is the mark of emotional adulthood is saying to yourself, I am radically responsible for my emotional state. It's not my partner's fault. I feel this way. It's not my partner's responsibility to rescue me and make me feel better. That move is a huge shift. So then I became interested in how do I regulate my nervous system? What tools and techniques? And there's a whole bunch, but they mostly involve breathing and visualizing my body grounding itself into the earth, breathing like a meditative breath where I calm my body down and not expecting my husband to do that for me. So over time, I teach couples, both sides, how to regulate their nervous system so that they can do the opposite of what they're natively doing. So what I've had to learn is to give my partner space and regulate myself. And what he's had to learn is lean in and get curious about my emotions when his instinct tells him to lean out. Again, we have to cross-train each other. That's how you become successful in a couple. Hey, U-Turners, so sorry for the quick interruption, but I am so excited our sponsor, Organifi, is offering a promotion through September 24th that you've got to know about. Every single afternoon, I've been warming myself up some coconut milk and using a frother with a scoop of Organifi Gold, Organifi Pumpkin Spice Gold, or Organifi's Chocolate Gold Powder. These powders are turmeric lattes, tonics with mushrooms, and all sorts of Ayurvedic herbs to help your health, and they have curbed my sweet tooth every single day and felt like kind of a dessert for me in the afternoon. So when you go on over to Organifi.com slash U-Turn and you use your checkout code, you're going to get 15% off on the trio bundle and a free frother, which is such a game changer for making your latte. All I do is warm up my coconut milk. You can do any sort of milk, put a scoop of my favorite gold, pumpkin spice, or chocolate gold product into my cup and I use the frother to blend it and there you go. You've got an amazing latte to curb your sweet tooth just like I have mine. All you got to do is go to O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash U-Turn, Y-O-U-T-U-R-N and use the U-Turn code when you check out for that 15% off and that free frother when you get the trio bundle of Organifi Gold, Chocolate Gold and Pumpkin Spice. It is so exciting that they're offering this and it's good until September 24th. So make sure you grab it while you can. And I know um, safety is such a topic for so many people and a lot of us turn to our relationships to feel safe, which I think, you know, like growing up with parents, we turn to them to help us feel safe as our caretakers. And I know that once we have a partner and that becomes like our primary attachment figure, we want to turn to them for safety. Like what, what do you have here to note for anybody listening who wants to feel that sense of safety on their own? Because I know that it is very tempting to buy into the illusion that our safety comes from the other person. Yes. At first, I want to honor and normalize and dignify the instinct that wants our partner to rescue us. The reason why it makes sense and why I have a lot of compassion for it is because as a child, when we were born as a baby, the mother's, um, the, the mother's nervous system rewires into a dyad while she's pregnant. So she goes from an individual human to a dyadic entity. And when the baby's born, she maintains that dyadic entity. So there's her nervous system is entrained with the babies. They're actually part of one nervous system, even though they're physically separate now. And so when the baby is crying, you know, a firstborn baby, it does not know or have the tools to self-soothe or regulate its own nervous system. It just cannot. It's completely dependent on the mother to attend to its needs and to calm it down. The mother has to pick it up, rock it, give it the booby, like 
depending on how well or not well your attachment figure was able to regulate their nervous system and then allow the baby to feel calm in the field of the mother's regulated nervous system. So it's not about the mother calming the baby down. It's about the mother noticing her upset, regulated, dysregulated system, her calming her own nervous system down, and then the baby feels the mother's calm through the field. Some of our parents were great at calming themselves down. Some of our parents at other times were not. And in fact, we as kids had to calm them down. Okay, that's the parentification of the child. And wherever we had to, we had no one to calm ourselves down and we had to calm them down. We are angry internally and frustrated and resentful that our innocence and childhood was stolen from us. That we didn't have the adults taking care of us in that moment and soothing us the way we needed. And so there's an eternal hard done by grumble. Like, why should I have to calm myself down? It's your job. And as a kid, you're right. It was your parents' job and they did drop the ball. And I'm sorry that you had to calm yourself down without any caretaker soothing you. And that's totally normal. But then when you grow up and you fall in love, the young part of you gets triggered and regresses. You regress back and you expect your partner to fill in the gap where your parent failed you. And, And you feel entitled to it because the young part of you did deserve it and is entitled but actually you're a grown up adult and your partner didn't pick you to be your parent. And so they're frustrated and they feel burdened by your incessant entitled need for them to do something to make you feel better, whether it's give them space or make them feel, make you feel loved, whatever the thing is you need to feel safe. It feels like a burden on your partner. So really maturation is about growing that young part up and learning how to give that young part of yourself, um, the soothing, it's almost like pretending you're a parent to your young, scared self and calming and learning to soothe your young self down without asking your partner to do it. The only way I've learned how to teach this is to actually demonstrate it for my clients to, for the hour that we're on a call, actually be their surrogate temporary attachment figure, hear their pain, hear their heartbreak, be with them, soothe them, teach them what it feels like to be listened to and honored in their feelings and then slowly teach them how to do that for themselves when I'm not on the phone. So I teach them to become their own internal attachment figure to their young upset self. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I love this. And I think for so many people, it's going to resonate because this whole safety thing, I think drives a lot of us. And I know a lot of people in relationships don't feel safe with their partner. And that kind of makes me think of the hold me tight book exactly. talking about how emotional disconnect and not feeling like your needs or longings, like there's a place to go put them with your partner or be seen by them. Now there um, is, I do want to say there is a phase you get to the relationship where your partner can become a safe refuge for you. I think of a relationship as a trampoline towards your dreams and a sanctuary for your pain. But before you can use your partner as a refuge, you have to learn how to be a refuge for yourself. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is your partner is on some level choosing you to be a a parent for their future child. And if you don't know how to create a separate safe refuge in yourself, you won't be a very good parent to the future child. So their refusal to rescue you when you're upset and stressed out is actually an attempt to grow the muscles in you to become a better parent one day, even though it feels awful in the moment. And there's one metaphor that really nails this. I just want to give you. So oftentimes when we're triggered and we're upset with our partner, we, we're asking them to just do this thing. Either just tell me you love me. Just give me a hug. Just say everything's going to be okay. Or just give me some space. Just go away for five minutes. Like whatever is the thing that you want from your partner. It, it, you're drowning here in the ocean. It's like your partner's standing on the boat holding a life jacket. And you're saying, just throw me the life jacket. And they're, you, we think they're just laughing maniacally and not throwing us a life jacket while we drown in the water. That's what it looks like. But the truth is, Your partner is not standing on the boat with a life jacket. Your partner is actually on the other side of the boat, drowning themselves. Their drowning looks different than your drowning. So you might not realize they're drowning. But anytime your partner does not hand you what you need or give you what you need when you're upset, the reason is not because they won't and they have the the answer in their hand and they're choosing not to give it to you. It's because they can't. They literally can't. They are drowning in their own dysregulated, scary place on the other side of the boat. So the only thing for you to do is to give up 
expecting them to save you. No one's coming to rescue you. You got to learn to swim to shore. That's self-regulation. And the more you swim to shore, the more your partner can see you swimming and maybe be inspired to start swimming themselves. Or you can go get help and bring the help back. But getting angry at your partner for not rescuing you when you're upset is like getting angry at a drowning person for not throwing you a life jacket. Mm, mm, so true. And, and I also know that, you know, a lot of your work is around cult- helping somebody cultivate their strong sense of self. And so it's interesting because there's like a couple camps that I'm seeing, and I'm sure there's many more, but the first camp is like what you were talking about, where if somebody's partner says like, what do you want? And the person can't provide what they want. And that can trigger like a lack of safety in the other person feeling like, well, who am I with? What do they want? What can I do to, you know, And then there's the other camp, which I actually think I kind of am in where I'm pretty, I have a lot of clarity on myself. Sometimes I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. you know, but a lot of the times I'm like, oh, this is what I want. And and it's really clear for me. And I think that's probably what feeds into me doing a good job with career coaching. Like I'm pretty good at anchoring into like, this is what the person is and this is what makes sense. So, um, how does somebody like take a look at that where like, in my case, I seem to have a strong sense of self. Um, what role does that play in? And maybe I'm misunderstanding myself. I'm misinterpreting wants for needs. When you Um, say you have a want, do you have an assumption that if you have a need or a want that your partner should fulfill it? Um, my story is that if it's not that big of a deal for them, like they don't want something that bad in that category, like why not? So like if I'm neutral on what I want for dinner and William has like a strong pull for sushi, I'm just like, all right, fuck it. He wants sushi. I don't really care that much about what I get tonight. And what um, makes you think he doesn't already do that? What, what if he doesn't just say yes to something you're desiring, there must be a reason. Yeah. Yeah. It totally. And I think that that's where I've finally landed with him where I'm like, okay, I think he's probably being pretty accommodating in a lot of things. And I'm having a visceral experience of the things where he's not. Um, and so like, for example, if we have an outing, usually I'll get tired after like six or seven or eight hours and want to go home. And he doesn't want me to be tired. He wants me to just kind of go with the flow, which in my interpretation means go until he's tired, you know? So we have a bit of a power struggle when it comes to like going out. And let me ask you something. Have Um, you guys ever entertained the possibility of you going home a few hours early because you're tired and him staying? Or is that that a taboo? Yeah. He doesn't like that. I think, I don't know if it's like his Middle Eastern culture thing where like he wants me to be with him. Like there's something about like his woman comes with him. I have no idea. So so that Um, piece right there, that is a new possibility. So I had, I used to have the same idea that partners should stay together. And if I want to stay at the party later, which I usually do, and Evan wants to go home because he's the introvert, I want him to stay with me. But I, I, I'm living with a very strong selfer. And I realized, because mm-hmm. he would assert it, um, I realized, oh, it's really painful for him to stay past the, the, the three hours he can tolerate. And yeah, in, so I either have to be willing to go home with him or willing to let him go home on his own. He didn't require that I come home with him early and I'm not requiring him to stay, but it was a big move for me to stop requiring him to stay. The only reason I grew into that new version of Annie, which I'm inviting you to have your partner grow into is because he stood so strongly for needing to go home. I suspect you bend, you stay even though you don't want to, which trains him to believe the following she doesn't really want to go home that bad because if she really wanted to go home that bad, she would really make a bigger deal and stand clearly and more firmly, not forcing him to go home, but saying, honey, I love you. I want you to have the best time with your friends. I know you're going to be great for the next couple hours. I'm just going to jump in an Uber and go home and I'll be all cuddled up in bed waiting for you. You have to make it really easy for him to see that everything's going to be okay if we separate. It's not the end of the world. And once he does it a few times, it'll now become part of the option array and the portfolio of possibilities. But, mm, great. But great. I think you stay and then secretly bitch. But then mm. what you're doing is training him to not take your need seriously. We literally train our partners how to treat our wants, our needs, our desires by how we treat them. So mm. if you bring your friends over to your house and you walk in with your shoes on, walk straight onto your carpet, put your feet up on your sofa with your shoes, you have just demonstrated and train them how to put their shoes up on your sofa. Your partner is watching you. They watch when you hold a firm boundary, when you're a clear no. They watch when you're a waffler. They watch when you tolerate. 
And anything short of clear no, they think, well, I can get away with it. You know, it's okay. If it was really bad, she'd stand up. So you have to, mm-hmm. it's, it's actually um, negligent for you to stay at the party longer than you want because it damages the PR of your partner in your own mind because you start to resent mm-hmm. them. So the, yes. the trick is if you told him how much kilojoules of resent you were going to have for staying at the party that was going to be aggressive in your energy towards him the next few days, if, you, if he actually knew how much it was costing his PR, he would make a different choice. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think that with, and this kind of brings into like a lot of like women and uh, stereotypes, but like, I think there's an interpretation that like for some women, if they really need something that they're bossy, if they're going to like not tolerate, you know what I mean? Um, well, also bossy's tone though. Let's get back to request mm-hmm. and demand. Cause we talked about it, but we didn't distinguish yeah. them. So, and it's actually the difference is this difference. The request and the demand, the only difference, because you can use the same words for both. The only difference between a request and a demand is when you make a request, you, before you make the request, you run in your mind the possibility of them saying yes or no. You, make, you, you do all your work to make peace with whether they say yes or no. You get coping with their no. You, they say no, they want, don't want to go to the party. You, you breathe, you work through your frustration and your grumble and your sadness all before you open your mouth. And once you make peace with the yes or no, which doesn't mean you don't have a preference, you can still have a preference for them saying yes, but the preference is not an attached death grip where you have to get the outcome that you want. You've become equanimous. You can cope with a no. You'd prefer a yes, but your partner is going to feel free to say either one. So when you make the request, hey, honey, will you go to the party with me tonight? The request has to land on the other person's consciousness as if it was a buffet. You know, when you go to the buffet and you can take any of the salad or any of the French fries or whatever, no one's forcing you to eat anything. You have free choice. That's the feeling that the person you're making the request to has to feel that they can say yes, they can say no. It's like a buffet. They're not going to get in trouble. They're not going to get punished. You're not going to withhold love. You're not going to hold a grudge. If you don't take the tomato slices from the buffet, no one comes over and punishes you, gets in your face, criticizes you, tells you you're a bad eater. You are free to be happy no matter what you take at the buffet. Until you do the work upstream before you make the request and get to the place where your partner feels the buffet energy of it can go either way, they might feel you have a preference, that's okay, but they can't. They have to not feel that they're going to be punished, shamed, love withheld, grudge held, any punishment or make wrong if they go with no. That is a request. And that's a lot of work. Most people make um, a request, a demand dressed up as a request. Honey, will you go to the party with me tonight? No, hon, I'm too tired. I don't want to go to the party. Oh, really? Well, you never go to the party with me. And I always have to da 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 Punish, attack, mm-hmm. shame, make wrong. It was never a request. It was a demand dressed up as a request. And the way you know it's a demand is you get angry or you withhold love or you stonewall. Then it was never a request. Mm. And that means it was a manipulation. Mm. A demand is a manipulation dressed up as a request. Mm, So powerful. And I know that a lot of people really, really, really struggle with this because when it comes to like relationship dynamics, there's, there's probably like a level of exhaustion of like, man, I keep asking for this thing and they can't do it or whatever. So what recommendations do you have if maybe you're stuck in kind of like a circle where it's like, okay, maybe they can't help with this thing? Well, one, one technique is the broken record. Just keep reasserting the request without Mm -hmm. escalating, without shame, blame, and make wrong or anger. Another one is to actually remember that the person you're asking actually cares about you and loves you. They actually do. Mm -hmm. And if you were to communicate to them that this is really important, Evan and I, my husband and I, we have a scale. So everything's on a scale. If I'm angry, I'm two out of 10 angry. Or if I'm frustrated, I'm seven out of 10 frustrated between zero and 10. So I'm always rating on a scale, how angry or sad or how much I want something. If I want him to go to the party, He doesn't know if it's a party where I want him nine out of 10 or two out of 10. He doesn't know. Mm -hmm. So I'm always calibrating how much, how strong is my desire. And I'll say to my husband, Hey honey, this one's really important. Um, This one's like Mm -hmm. a nine out of 10. My whole family's going to be there. All my friends from high school, 
it would mean so much if you could just, this is the one of all the ones, this is a real important one, but you can't use that every time. So you want to actually only say this is the nine, eight out of 10 important one when it is. And if it's a two out of 10, you say, you know what? I really like you to go meet my friends at the cafe, but it's like a two out of 10. So feel into yourself and see if you want to come. And if, if not, that's okay. And you let them know that it's meaningful you, to you. It's important to you. And you let them know how it would improve your life, make you happy, make you feel loved, what, how it would um, enrich your, your life. If you can show them the benefit, because a lot of times they don't understand why you want them to come. And mm-hmm. the reason you want them to, the, to come is not a reason they would ever model because they don't want you to do things for them that way. So it's almost like you have to show them, here's why it's important to me. And even when you say it's important, they still always have the prerogative of saying no. And you have to be willing to tolerate their no. And that's how they know you love them. When you tolerate their no, if when they say no, you get all angry and frustrated and whatever, hold a grudge, they feel like you were never really asking. You were always going to throw a tantrum. And that was just a fake demand dressed up. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's tone. It's noticing the part of you that wants to shame, blame, and make them wrong. If If that comes up, it means you didn't do the work beforehand before you made the request to cope with the fact that this other human is an autonomous, sovereign, separate human. They have different wants, needs, and desires, and they do things for different reasons. And if you ask them to do something and they say no, believe me, they can smell that you want them to do it, and they would do it if they could. The reason they're saying no is because they really don't want to do it. So you need to honor that fact, and you honoring that fact is how they know you love them. If you, if, if the way you think you're loved is because they do everything you want, that's, mm-hmm. we need to unhook that as a belief around whether you're, they love you. They love you mm-hmm. whether they go to the party or not. They love you no matter what. You, you can't interpret their no as an, they don't love you. Um, if over time you keep saying, this is really important, this would mean a lot to me, and you keep asking, and even when they're nine out of 10, your partner doesn't care and doesn't go. Then I would start to ask, does this person really care about how you feel? And maybe you're with someone who's extremely narcissistic, you're sociopathic, like, you know, that's always possible. Those types don't have empathy, don't have guilt or shame, and they don't, they don't know how to care for another human. Mm, mm, So beautiful. And I I know that, um, I love when you say like, you need to unhook this thing. And I do think that for me, like sometimes I'm kind of in like boss mode with my work and I don't want to be bossy with my partner and be like, I need this. And they might say like, Hey, I can't do that. So I think the want versus need the request versus demand, very powerful distinctions. Well, just look at your voice. Um, Just, you said, I need this. Just look at how you say it. So whenever you make a request, there's a power dynamic and the power dynamic is the requester has to be in deference deference energy. So imagine if you um, almost hit someone on the side, like who's walking across the street in your car and you almost hit them, but you didn't. Then you get out of the car, know the energy you would have. You would be like, oh my God, are you okay? You know, it's deference. It's low, lower status. It's um, not entitled. It's like, it's not, are you okay? It's, oh, are you okay? So energetically, you have to be slightly lower status when you're making a request in order for it to be a request. Otherwise, it's probably a demand. So higher status would be, a higher energy would be more dominating. I need to go to the party tonight. So are you coming? That is not a request. It's because you're dominating, you're manipulating. Request energy is always open arms, open heart, eyes, you know, uptone at the end of the sentence. It's gentle. It feels like a buffet. It doesn't feel like a finger pointing saying you have to eat this meal. So powerful. And when you think about, um, strong sense of self-esteem, and I know you've coached so many different people, what is the trademark when you're coaching somebody of a woman, a guy where you're like, this person has a a strong sense of self-esteem, not in a way that they're demanding, but in a way where it's like, they know who they are and what they want. And that is going to show well in a relationship. What are some, some signs of that? Yeah. So self-esteem is a interesting topic. And Nathaniel Brandon actually wrote the book on it. A great book called the six pillars of self-esteem. The way he defines self-esteem he has two parts. It's two parts. 
first part is self-esteem is your faith in your ability to face the future challenge that come your way. So it's, it's your belief in your future self's ability to cope with what's coming, right? It's faith in your future, in your future's ability to cope. The second piece of self-esteem is believing you deserve to be happy. Just actually believing I deserve to be happy. I deserve to get my needs met. I deserve to have wants that those two pieces is what he calls self-esteem. And so the way I notice high self-esteem is one of the first things, because I'm obviously working with relationships. You want to see where someone's self-esteem is around relationships. Just look who they're dating. Just look who they're married to. That's their self-esteem in that domain. You can have high self-esteem around wood carving and fixing computers and low self-esteem around romantic dynamics. So self-esteem is domain specific, right? I have very high self-esteem around helping people in conflict. I have almost zero self-esteem around, um, I don't know, cooking, literally. I get nervous when I go into the kitchen because I don't know how to cook. It's like the pots are scaring me. So it's domain specific. And so I look at how, um, how confident someone is in taking on a new challenge. So when a little four-year-old kid walks up to the playground and wants to try to walk up the slide staircase, their self-esteem is their belief in their ability to climb it up. Now they might try to climb the little staircase and then fail, but they had faith and they tried. The more you try to do something that's just out of your zone of um, uh, comfort, the more you do things outside of your comfort zone and try them, the more you stretch your self-esteem. You won't get them right all the time, but you start to go, oh, well, I didn't swim all the way across the swimming pool, but I I swimmed halfway and I now have more self-esteem because I did a little bit more. So you build your self-esteem by doing things that are a little bit challenging, not too challenging where you just feel like a loser and you didn't even get started, but just in the zone of challenging enough to feel you keep you engaged and not too challenging to literally break your, um, your coping. So, and that's like a, a particular zone. It's called you stress. So you want to have you stress. And the other way I encourage people to build their self-esteem is like a private signature move is I ask my clients to go through their life and look for microscopic moments of delight. It's a little different than a gratitude list. It's, I want them to go through the, their day and notice, oh, I got in the shower today and used my mango body wash. And I really liked the smell of the mango body wash. And I felt a little jolt of delight. But most people aren't tracking that. They, they just have their shower and they smell the mango, but they didn't enjoy the moment of delight. So I asked my clients to go on a reconnaissance mission, searching through their moment-to-moment day for tiny, insignificant moments of appreciation, beauty, poetry, or delight. And what I'm doing is I'm training them to fall more in love with their moment-to-moment life because what is a self but a whole bunch of moment-to-moment life? So I'm training them to fall in love with their self by having them fall in love with their life, but not by oh, I got a new job promotion or I just got a new apartment. Not big things, tiny things that normally go unnoticed. It's like you're excavating from what's there, but not in your consciousness. So that's one piece. And the other thing is I ask people to look, imagine that they're on a movie screen at all times and they're on the movie screen and in the audience of the movie are all their people that they have ever admired, all their mentors and all their future successful selves. So in the audience are all people they admire and their future successful selves. Who would you have to be as you're talking to your partner, as you're speaking to a friend while you're on the movie screen? What would you have to do right now in the movie scene that would have everyone in the audience be clapping for you? How would you have to act? What would you have to say so that all the people in the audience that you admire are clapping for what you're doing and saying? The more you imagine that you're on a movie screen and the audience is watching, and what would have the audience be clapping, the more you become that version that you admire and the higher your self-esteem. Does that make sense? Yeah, beautiful. And one final thing that you kind of shared was the importance of showing your pain or your heartbreak when you are making a request so that the other person can really understand it. Um, What do you mean by that? Yeah, so oftentimes when we're in pain or we're hurt by a partner, we feel angry or upset 
at their callousness or their insensitivity or that their naivete, their myopia, we're angry and upset that they hurt us. And so when we express our hurt, it comes out in anger or in distress. It's like it, there's a, a dysregulation around it. We don't often actually do the hard work of feeling into the center of our pain and then bringing our pain to our partner, like literally opening our kimono and saying, partner, love, I know you care about me. I know you love me. And bringing the howl of their, our own heartbreak. So if I said to my husband, if I came up to my husband with blood gushing out of my hands and I said, husband, will you help me? I'm bleeding. He would run to go get a Band-Aid. He would totally come and help me. If I come up to my husband and I'm like, hey, fucker, I got cut because you left a knife out in the kitchen. Can you like fix this shit? He yes. is not what? inclined. He's like, what? what are you? He's busy defending himself. <laughs> but even if he did leave a knife on the counter and I cut myself, if I can come with my pain, which takes way more work to actually show pain and owie to a partner, it will wake them up from their self-absorbed slumber and it will call them to take care of you and nurture you because they love you. The reason they don't come is because most of the time we don't come with our open kimono, vulnerable, transparent owie with our blood. We come with our grumble and our defenses and they can't see through our defenses. They just start defending themselves when we come with blame, shame, make wrong. If you can bring your owie without blame, shame, and make wrong, just like you would bring a paper cut that you got by yourself when you were ruffling through papers. You take responsibility for your owie, even though you think they caused it. Show them the owie without any blame and they'll come forward. They don't know you're in pain when you're angry. That's, I was giving you the example earlier, if you're in a dental office, they put an anesthetic in and then they start to drill. If the anesthetic didn't take and you start to feel the pain of the drill, you have to say, ow. And I, you wouldn't be like, ow, what the fuck's wrong with you? You'd be like, ow, hey, the anesthetic didn't take. And so then now they can do something different. But if you don't say ow, how can your partner know? And WTF, you know, what the fuck's wrong with you? WTF is not an ow. Instead of WTF, yeah. you want to have teaching stance. Ow, honey, I'm hurt. Yesterday when you said this thing about my mom, my heart contracted and I felt maybe you didn't think I was good enough. It really hurts when you call me just like my mother. That's me teaching my partner how to talk to me. It's teaching stance where I assume they didn't know and I'm just educating them rather than WTF stance. You want to have teaching stance when you're giving your partner feedback. Assume that they don't know how to do the thing and they need a paint by numbers description of how to do it rather than WTF, you should have known this already. What's wrong with you? Shame, blame, make wrong. That doesn't work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I just, Annie, you're just so full of so much for so many. I, I know a lot of people are going to be wanting to hear more of you, find more of you, and you have so many beautiful things that you're putting out into the world. Um, I was out of town this week and you had this summit that I've just been like dying to get my hands on. Um, where can somebody go if they want to keep learning from you just right now, straight up? Yeah, just come on over to my website, AnnieLala.com, A-N-N-I-E-L-A-L-L-A. Dot com. I've got lots of free videos. I've got a lots of free blogs and you can take the love test. I have a 10 question test that will tell you definitively whether you're in love with your partner or whether they're in love with you. And I send out, you know, all my latest ideas. I write and send it out to my um, tribe. So join the tribe. I'll always write and tell you when I'm doing um, summits and courses and seminars. Right now, my husband and I are teaching a three-day relationship workshop and we're going to be starting to do a one-day one, all free, right? These are these are workshops I'm offering free. There's some courses I have that are paid, but we're doing a lot of free stuff during COVID. And so join the tribe and you'll hear about what's up next. Oh, thank you so much for everything. And I can't wait for everybody to listen to this. Yeah, thanks, Ashley. And with you just specifically, I just really want you to make requests to your partner, not demands. Because that's what the don't tell me what to do is he sniffs the demand. If you, mm. if you just say, in order to say don't tell me what to do, you would have had to say something. 
that makes sense of that. If you're saying, hey, honey, will you help me in the garden? Don't tell me what to do. Doesn't even make sense. Right? Honey, I'm in the garden. Why aren't you here yet? Like any kind of snarky, entitled, dominating, you should have already known this. That's a manipulation. And you're going to get the don't tell me what to do. And it's perfect, actually. It's perfect that he's saying that because he's going to, it will never work until you clean off your demand. So he's the perfect gymnasium in which to build the muscle of hygienically cleaning up all the manipulation from your request. Oh, so beautiful. And I'm so down for it. And I just feel like you have a way of talking about growth that I think inspires people to keep doing it versus shrink. So I'm on it. And I hope that everybody listening can kind of join me in like figuring out these, these uh, nuances between requests and demands and needs versus wants and showing heartbreak versus kind of being like, what the fuck? And building that sense of self. There's so much here. And um, I'm sure I'll be knocking at your door, having you come back on the show. Thanks again. Lovely to be here. Take care, sweetie. Hey there, it's Ash here. And I am just reflecting on this week's episode with Annie Lala. And I mean, as I said, I think she's super brilliant. And I worked with her years ago and I just never forgot my time with her because everything she said was so unique and so original, like I said. And uh, a couple things are coming up for me after the episode other than a huge vulnerability hangover. But I felt like because she can hold all of my thoughts in such a unique way, I wanted to share and open up a little bit more. So Hopefully it's a non-judgmental space here on the podcast, which I'm sure it is. Um, you know, we're all learning and growing and I'm really no exception to that. Um, and even with all of the tools that I have, and I've learned as a coach the past decade, facilitating hundreds of people one-on-one and in courses, you know, thousands of people, it doesn't change the fact that I still feel so much and that I'm still such a human and the human in me feels all of the things. And so, one thing that kind of came up after kind of looking at these very powerful distinctions of requests versus demands and wants versus needs. Another distinction we didn't talk so much about on the podcast that I wanted to leave you with was the one of boundaries versus barriers. To me, a boundary is an act of self-love. A boundary is something that you decide that you are going to put around yourself um, and, and let be known so that you can stay healthy and well and just maintain your well-being. A barrier, I think it comes from fear. So boundaries to me come from love. Like I love myself. I love the other person too much to be resentful towards them. I'm going to set a boundary and let them know where my end point is with something so that they don't ask more of me than I can give, or they understand that I'm not going to give more than I can give. I think a barrier on the other hand is a lot tighter and it's something that keeps people out. And I think it comes from fear, whereas boundaries come from love. So barriers, I think come from when you're afraid of someone, when you're afraid of something, you may be Feel a boundary coming up and instead of setting the boundary you just put a wall around yourself you become inflexible unreachable emotionally or energetically that's a barrier so if somebody hurt you and you want to lean in and set a new boundary that's from love like letting them know what you can or can't do but if somebody hurts you and you just hide or run or stonewall them that's a barrier and so I find that sometimes when people are new at setting boundaries and it's kind of like a new thing to realize, like, this is what I can do. This is what I can't do. And if I go to that dinner that I don't want to go to, I'm going to be resentful. So I'm going to set a boundary and let them know I'm not available that night. Um, that's one thing versus barriers of like not responding, ignoring, hiding, being afraid. And so I just want to ask you right now, what boundaries do you need to set, whether it's in your relationship or in your friendships, any of the ships, (laughs) what boundaries do you need to set right now? Um, where are you feeling trespassed? Where are you feeling like something isn't working for you? And what do you really need? Ask yourself, what do you really need to, to flow and operate with grace in that connection or in that dynamic? And then the second thing is where are you accidentally setting barriers or putting barriers around yourself out of fear or out of resentment or out of exhaustion? And how can you kind of upgrade that into a boundary and lighten it and soften it into something more loving? So, um, I have a lot of thoughts always after Annie Lala episodes, but these are some, and I hope that my share was supportive to you too. And I'm just so honored that you're listening. I see that there've been a couple new reviews on the podcast. That means the world to me. Thank you so much. And, um, I, I think that's the highest form of, of love that you could be giving me is, is writing those. So thank you. And I'll send you guys a lot of good energy for the week.
Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. If any of our guests mention any resource that you're interested in, you can head on over to ashleystahl.com and press the podcast tab to see any show notes. It's A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-T-A-H-L.com. On that page, you're also going to see our brand new free quiz, helping you discover which career path you're actually meant for. It's followed by tons of content-packed emails about your personality in the work course. And of course, we just can't thank you enough for your written reviews. These reviews mean a lot for our show to keep getting out there. So if you ever send me a DM on the gram, and I'm so grateful that you have, I would love it if you would copy and paste that into the podcast app of your smartphone as a written review. It would mean so much for us over here at the show. Thanks again for being here, and I can't wait to connect with you next week.